welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show about climate and energy issues by young people for all people. This week, as always, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Kelly, Kelly Jang. How you doing, Kelly Jang? I'm good. My calf feels slightly sore right now. Your calf? Yes, because... So my boyfriend and his roommates have some race where they basically just time trial from their house to the top of the hill. So it's like a... like 2.3 miles, like 13 something hundred feet of gain. And I basically, they have some crazy rules. It's very ridiculous. Um, But I was like, okay, I'll try it. Cause there's like a separate leaderboard for women that no one's tried yet. And uh, I haven't tried that hard in a while. It was difficult. (laughs) And then I got a ride back down cause there's like a road that goes down to the bottom. Um, But yeah, I, uh, I also did this, so this, it's Thursday, so that was Wednesday. And my excuse for why I did not perform my best was because I did a different trail race on Sunday, and that was really fun. But then... Multiple I, trail races Well, Well, I mean, the one yesterday was, like, more of, like, a time trial, but the Sunday one, it was, like, a legit race. And I have, I think, I don't know, my friends are like, well, clearly you didn't try hard enough because you're walking completely fine afterwards. You're able to run fast. Like, two days later, I'm like... Oh, uh, guess I should have tried harder. <laughs> That's funny. I I uh, I don't want to. You know, I'm I'm seeing Kelly who doesn't try hard every single day, so I'm I can't even imagine what try hard Kelly is gonna look like. If I tried hard, so I realized afterwards looking at the results, the person who's like one place in he- ahead of me beat me by one minute over the course of like four hours, and I was like, wow, if I just tried mm. half a percent harder, I could have, <laughs> you know, but whatever. It's fine. I mean, I got injured two months ago, and so just, like, being able to run, like, 20 miles and, like, not have any pain or anything is, like, a huge achievement for me. So I'm very happy. Yeah, what have you been up to? Um, yeah, over the past week or so since we last talked, um, I went to a jazz show with um, the person I've been seeing. Um, it's been, it's been nice. We, we went to, we went to jazz and it was the first time that I've been in the city and, um, it was cool. It was a bunch of like, like old men, like kind of just doing their thing, playing jazz. Like they were all like dressed up to the nines, but like sitting back really casually and like, it's kind of a flex. Like they were dressed really well, super casual, playing amazing jazz. And when they'd finished, they'd look around the crowd kind of like, you guys, you guys like that? But like, they were like, yeah, we know you like that. It was, it was it was fun, and there was like a good amount of dancing, and um, and this past weekend was Halloween, which if some of my viewers, some of the viewers might know, is my favorite um, uh, holiday. It's my favorite holiday of out of all the holidays. It's it's the most fun. You get to dress up and and be something that you're not, which um, it definitely was. Um, I dressed up as Robin from like Batman and Robin, um, or from like Teen Titans, which is like my style of Robin. I was like dressed up in a full leather outfit. It was actually, like, really, <laughs> like, an intense costume. Um, it was really fun. I went dancing afterwards. Went to Outside Lands. Shout out to anyone who was at Outside Lands. Maybe I saw you there. Um, maybe you didn't recognize me, which is probably for the better, because, um, uh, you know, not something <laughs> that people need to see, necessarily. But it was a great, great week. Um, really happy to, to have Halloween come by again and let my inner ghoul kind of come out and play, so... That was that was pretty fun. Um, we also have a third guest with us this week, um, and this is someone that Kelly knows from a while back. Um, hey, Austin, what, what what have you been up to this past 
week? Well, we did have Halloween. Um, that was a recent occurrence. Um, my girlfriend and I went as Steve Irwin and a crocodile. I was the crocodile. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, mainly just been on the school grind trying to get by and uh, also trying to get my pass so I can ski because the mountains just opened. Um, so, yeah, that's what's going on on my end. Happy to be here. Yeah, so happy to have you here, Austin. So a bit of background on Austin. We met, we just discovered, we just thought about this 11 years ago in <laughs> Algebra 2 at Redmond Junior High. Throwback. In Miss Elock's class back in the day. Yeah, serious throwback. Um, <clears throat> and then we reconnected, I think, more recently, probably over the last few years or so due to both being energy wonks. I'm not entirely sure how we discovered this. It's probably from like seeing each other's posts on social media. I was like, oh, this guy like knows his stuff. And he's the only person who has ever um, given the feedback that our podcast should be more wonky. <laughs> so we know what we're dealing with here. Um, <clears throat> so we were thinking about it. We're like, is anyone else who went to high school with us at this level of energy wonkiness? And we're like, you know... Probably not. So out of 2,000 people at Redmond High School, there's two of us. So that means 0.1% <laughs> of the population is crazy energy wonks. That, and that we know of. There might be some hidden energy wonks there, and there may be some late blooming, right. late blooming <laughs> energy wonks. But it's true. we're the ones we know of so far. The most visible ones. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, and so <clears throat> um, Austin worked for a solar and battery project developer for a couple of years immediately after graduating and is now pursuing his PhD in the Advanced Energy Systems Program at Colorado School of Mines. It's a really cool program that's also um, in collaboration with NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, which I went to once for one day, um, so I didn't get to see too much. <laughs> um, and as he mentioned, he is also a semi-professional skier, so check out his Instagram at a-U-S Kinza, K-I-N-Z-A, for some sick first-person free ride footage. We're I'm still waiting on those crash reels from last season. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have lots of good videos of kids crashing. I'm a, I'm a coach, um, and uh, the season's starting up soon, and our team's actually bigger than ever. Um, so we have a bunch of new kids, so there will be lots of good crashes this season. I'm very looking forward to it. <laughs> No sleds, though. Yeah, I, I agree. No sleds. No, uh, you know, ruptured uh, organs from broken ribs. Spleens. Yeah, <laughs> we don't like ruptured spleens. We've had one too many of those. <laughs> um, cool. Austin, um, do you want to give, I mean, I gave a pretty, you know, comprehensive intro, but is there anything else you want to say about yourself, you know, what you're studying in <clears throat> your program, um, where you want to go with that? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess to, to back up a little further, I did my undergrad at University of Colorado Boulder in environmental engineering, um, did a minor in energy engineering, and did the renewable energy certificate. Um, so really went out of my way to take all the energy classes I could. Um, and as Kelly mentioned, graduated, worked for a startup um, doing commercial energy storage software for a few years. Um, start off, startup laid off all its staff at the end of 2019. Um, so I was, I was unemployed going into COVID, um, was doing some ski coaching and then, um, yeah, COVID hit. Uh, and then I started grad school last fall. So, um, I'm currently working on research related to 
agrivoltaics, which is the combination of agriculture and photovoltaics. We can dive more into the weeds on that in a little bit. No pun intended. <laughs> into the weeds. Did not. I, that was honestly not intended. Um, and then separately, I'm also working on literature review on carbon capture utilization and sequestration uh, with the Payne Institute, um, which is it's a, it's a massive undertaking because we're going through literally thousands of papers to distill down the information. So I, I think I bit off a little more than I could chew on that. But um, yeah, that's what I'm working on. So happy to yeah dive into the details wherever y'all want. Carbon capture and utilization, huh? That's that's really that's really interesting. We we here at the Renewable Generation are gonna someday create an episode about carbon capture and utilization. I think our audience is uh is expecting it at some point. We're we're gonna we're gonna get to it. I promise. We're gonna get to it. Um, who knows when though? Um, but that that all sounds really cool, Austin. I think yeah, definitely excited to get into the weeds with you on this. So um, kind of first and foremost. Like, what's, can you give us a little bit about, about your background? Like, what got you interested in sustainability in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, you know, coming from Washington, um, I, I was a skier growing up. So I grew up skiing Snoqualmie Pass. It's about 3,000 feet above sea level, which in, in the Cascades means that you often get rain at the bottom and snow at the top. And you take what you can get. <laughs> and and over the years, it's gotten progressively worse. Um you know, we've seen multiple years with a record low snowpack in my lifetime. We've been keeping records for, you know, 100 plus years. So uh, it's a little concerning to see that. So that was kind of the, the first, you know, real seeing the impacts um, in person of climate change. And then also um, my first year in Colorado was the, the winter of 2014, 2015. That was record low snowpack in the Cascades. And the following summer, it's record breaking wildfires. Um, and, and here in Colorado, you know, we're pretty frequently choked by smoke from the wildfires. Um, it's very, very evident. So, um, you know, I, I feel very fortunate in just my position in life, able-bodied, um, you know, grew up middle class and was able to have access to great education. And so, you know, just trying to think of how I can make the biggest impact in the world um, in, in the short time we have on the spinning rock, um, sustainability really made sense. And then if you look just kind of at, at climate change and break it down, you've got about a third of our emissions are the power sector. So we can address those. We have the technology. We can do it. Uh, another third of our emissions is transportation. So yeah, roughly, give or take. Um, between those two, if you can clean up the power sector, electrify transportation, then you've just dealt with two-thirds of greenhouse gas emissions. And so in terms of what we can do in the short term to address climate change, preserve quality of life for humanity going forward, it, it was a no-brainer for me to go into clean energy. Yeah, <clears throat> definitely. So I guess, have you ever always known that you wanted to pursue a career in clean energy specifically, or is that something that kind of you figured out over time? I definitely figured out over time. Uh, I didn't know initially. I knew I wanted to be doing something related to climate change. Initially, I was interested in environmental engineering, so I could look into um, glacial dams in the Himalayas, um, because this is, again, one of those direct impacts of climate change where um, you can have this catastrophic release of a glacial dam and flood entire villages and kill hundreds of people, potentially. And so this is, I, I learned about people who were 
doing monitoring of these glacial dams, just spending weeks, months hiking through the Himalayas. And I was like, wow, that sounds amazing. Let me do environmental engineering. Um, but then, yeah, obviously didn't go down that path. I ended up taking a uh, energy, it was just an elective class um, for my engineering degree and just started learning about the energy system. And, you know, it, it all just clicked. It made sense. It was, you know, it just, it all, it all came together for me to see. It's like, okay, first of all, this is super interesting. Um, because energy is, as you both know, it's, it's broad, it encompasses everything. It's so fundamental to our way of life. Um, and then there's also so much change happening in the sector right now that it's a really exciting place to be. So um, I saw that, and that's what made me want to get into it. Absolutely. It really is. Energy really is like this, one of those fundamental pillars of all of society, you know, really from the Industrial Revolution onwards. Like, there's no going back, like, to what to what we used to be. There's no way, like, any, you know, <laughs> developed nation household is going to opt to, you know, lose a refrigerator or, you know, get rid of Wi-Fi. I um, think Amory Lovins, founder of the Rocky Mountain Institute, I believe I can attribute this quote to him. People don't want energy. They want warm showers and cold beer. Yep. Oh, yeah, that's, that is the Amory Lovins quote. <clears throat> yep. Paraphrasing, but, yeah. Right. I think that is the actual quote. Yeah, yeah. It might, it might be hot showers, I think. I think it's hot showers. I'm, so I, I want like cold showers, showers and hot, hot beer. I don't know about you. <laughs> that sounds terrible. No, I'm just I kidding. will take a hot cider, though. Hot ciders are nice. Um, Se- seasonal beverage. And, and you know, given that, given that energy is such a fundamental, um, you know, pillar of society, there's always, you know, there's, there's related politics associated to that. And, you know, you viewing, I mean, you're, you're not a you know, policy person per se, or that's not your expertise, but I think what I, w- I would be curious to hear your take on what, um, like the political, the political implications of, uh, of energy are in the United States and like, in the state of where we are right now, um, in, in kind of like the U S in, in the global context. Where to begin. Wow. Uh, <laughs> well, um, energy drives politics in a lot of places. Um, it's fundamental to the, the, the economy broadly, but then if you look at um, specific communities, I mean, think of like coal communities in West Virginia, just as a random example for one that has... Just picking one out of the impli- hat. <laughs> yeah, that has implications for um, how we're going about our energy policy. Um, I, I think, generally speaking, you know, if, if I could do one thing, it would be to end subsidies on all types of energy. People like to call renewables expensive and tax subsidized. It's like, well, yeah, they're tax subsidized, but so is fossil fuel. Um, we're not pricing the, the social costs of carbon, which that, that alone, if, if we did that, I mean, that's hundreds of billions of dollars a year in government subsidies for oil, gas, coal. Carbon pricing, baby. Yeah, absolutely. Carbon pricing, I'll beat that drum all day. Um, we need to put a price on carbon. You need to price the externalities. Um, and then, yeah, the, the alternatives look a lot better. And, and actually, to, to briefly go back to what I was saying about carbon capture in this literature review, the, at the end of the day, we have the technology. We can do it. It's just whether the economic incentives are in place to encourage 
capital investment in this sector. Because again, it, the, the technology exists. We can pull carbon out of the air, but yeah, it costs around $100 to $1,000 per ton of carbon. So if we're willing to pay that, then yeah, we'll pull carbon out of the air. But unless we're willing to again, put the thumb on the scale, well actually really take the thumb off the scale of this unpriced externality, then you know, we're, that, that's, that's really like the, the key to addressing climate change. Yeah, and that's and also that's like the um, in economics terms like the, it's called the Pigovian tax. It's like a economics one hundred and one term. Pigovian tax is is an ec- is economists um, you know ideal way of dealing with these things called negative externalities. So so just to dive into that real quick, like the idea is let's say you buy a car from Ford and you pay let's say fifty thousand dollars for an F one fifty, but with that fifty fifty thousand dollars, it is not included like the, the the carbon emissions that have gone out into the air that are that are gonna you know spin around the climate and the atmosphere and cause climate and environmental disaster twenty years from now something like that so that's a negative externality that's borne by society at large and generally it's gonna be a um, a justice issue because the frontline communities that are gonna be facing those issues are historically disadvantaged black and brown communities so it's kind of those are the people paying for that negative externality. So econ- economists will want to factor that into the cost of the actual car itself. So instead of making it $50,000, maybe it's $65,000 because now we're c- capturing that cost of carbon. Um, and that's kind of um, – da- David Roberts actually recently had a um, – from Vox and, and from Volts, um, he has a piece he put out recently about how he, he was pretty, pretty much criticizing uh, carbon price because it's like, oh, yeah, it works if you view the entire world as a spreadsheet and you just add, you know – a percent adder on all things and, and then you solve climate change but politically it's very difficult to pass which i think is a fair fair criticism um but it's also like one of the the biggest levers we can pull and um it's also potentially one of the one of the conservative one of the more, more conservative solutions that are out there like re- republicans could potentially get behind this because it's market-based if that's what they care about market-based um, even if it's difficult, you know, because it's still a tax. It's a large caveat if that's what they care about. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, <clears throat> based on what I've seen in politics over the last few years, I don't think people really actually care about any of their stated principles in general ever. It's more about like self-interest. And I think <clears throat> with the carbon tax, it's like all pain and no gain. Whereas I think, <clears throat> especially with the revenue neutral carbon tax, that's the kind of thing where like policy wonks and like, you know, engineer types and rational type people like are really into that but then if you're someone who hates big government you're like well they're just like taking the money and shuffling it around that's pointless um and i think if it i i think also a lot of people are more maybe this is just my idealistic view of the world but it's like a lot of people are actually driven by like oh like we'll pay taxes to support this thing that's good like i would say my family is tends to be like extremely conservative, like, but my dad's like, oh, I always vote for things like school bonds, like libraries, hospital improvements, because that's like improving the community. And I think if you're like, oh, actually like, you know, we're collecting this carbon tax revenue and it will go towards funding projects like, um, you know, after the school plant in Centralia gets shut down, we're going to be investing in solar training programs at their community college. And that's the kind of thing where people are like, oh yes, like that makes sense. You're like, taking the revenue from the bad thing and then putting it towards investing in the good thing. It, like, even if it, and um, there's actually a really good article about this by David Roberts and Vox probably a couple years ago. He's like, more Republicans are in favor of this 
than in favor of a revenue neutral carbon tax. So it's very interesting to see people's like stated preferences when you actually ask this question versus what they claim, like what you would kind of assume based on their stated principles, because like, like it or not, most people's actual opinions are not really in line with their stated preferences. And I have this whole rant about the way that the carbon tax debates have gone down in Washington, but like, I, I was like, if you just, you know, the spokesperson for the um, investing in communities should have been like the president of like the Centralia Community College being like, invest in our drop training. Basically, instead, they had someone who's like, I worked at a refinery for like 20 years, but I realize we have to like have a carbon tax to help our children. I'm like, you're not going to convince anyone with that argument. It's like you're saying what the environmentalists would say, but you did work at a refinery, but you're basically making the same argument. And it's not more convincing coming out of your mouth, especially if you're just like a random dude that no one knows. Um, so anyway, I think um, the way that we frame policies, like as, I mean, for people like us who are wonkish and like, oh yes, like, you know, this is the most economically efficient policy. I think beyond economics, there's also the considerations of political economy, which is like how, you know, I mean, we're really seeing that now. It's like, oh, like which of the people in the legislature do you need to convince? of this policy and like what motivates them. And it's all very complicated. Was this sufficiently wonky for you, Austin? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm loving every moment of it. The Renewable Generation is brought to you by Bright Power the premier provider of energy and water solutions for real estate owners, op investors, and operators. We enhance building performance, simplify building operations, and contribute to a healthier environment inside and out. To learn more, please visit brightpower.com. Also, we're hiring. Check out our job openings at brightpower.com slash weird-hiring or go to brightpower.com and click on the careers tab. Great. And now we're back talking about agrivoltaics. So... Um, Austin, how did you first hear about and get involved in the agrivoltaic space? So May 2020, I was in my tiny studio apartment in Denver, and I was doom scrolling, as one did at that time, and I came across a post on LinkedIn. Uh, this guy who had this project, I heard, heard a little bit about it, it's called Jack's Solar Garden up in Longmont, and he was looking for volunteers to come out and, and maintain the pollinator habitat. So what they've done is um, Jack Solar Garden, they've got a 1.2 megawatt community solar array. And on the north and the west sides of the array, they have a pollinator habitat with um, various grasses, um, bushes. So they have berries, um, they have trees that are growing, fruit, nut trees. And um, over time, it'll you know be serving the local pollinators and um, also help helping to benefit the crop production going on underneath the panels, both for this project, but then also for surrounding um, community um, will also benefit from the pollinators. So I started volunteering out there, just helping essentially move mulch, pull weeds. This is the majority of the work I did and got to know the owner, Byron Komnick, fairly well. And the more I learned about agrivoltaics, the more I thought, wow, this is really cool. Why is no one doing it? So what, what do we need to get people to do this? Um, and so I decided to do a PhD on it. 
so I can figure out what what needs to be done. Interesting. So is that is that um, like your stated purpose? I guess at at um, school of mines, like it's um, agrivoltaics. Um, I guess is that like the title of your of what your degree will be? Um, the degree will still be advanced energy systems, um, but my specific research I would call it agrivoltaic design modeling. So how can we model variations in these systems to understand how that affects crop yield, how that affects water needs, how that affects electricity production and the overall system costs, and then how can we optimize design based on stated goals. So that's, that's really the focus is, is how do we model these systems accurately you know, the, the, old, the old adage goes, all models are wrong, some models are useful. My goal is to come up with a useful model that we can actually use to take it, at the end of the day, to someone who's going to provide project capital um, to an agrivoltaics project and say, here's what this project is going to do. We validated this against real-world data. We're confident within a 90% interval that it'll do this. And then so so just to back up for a second also to give like a, a big picture view of like why agrivoltaics is important and why it's going to be necessary in the future. Um, so solar, um, wind, these are obviously great technologies, but they take up land. Um, they, there is a finite amount of land in the world, so you have competing interests. Like, um, for example, like I, I worked at a solar developer in the past as well, just like uh, you, Austin, I believe. I believe you also did as well, right? Um, and yep. Solar and storage right. developer. So we, we, we were out there in, in rural Minnesota um, talking to landowners who normally have leased their lands to farmers, and we would say, hey, don't lease it to farmers, lease it to us. And we would essentially be the farmer's competition. And in Minnesota, where it's not necessarily a huge agricultural state like it is in California or, or other states, um, we could compete. We could, we could out-compete farmers all day long. Um, but there is an, there is an inherent um, conflict there that – as we take up more and more land over the coming decades, we'll get more, we'll get more drastic. Um, and we're going to need additional solar uh, and wind space, but we're also going to need food still. So this is a way to kind of have those two things coexist. You can have crops grow under the shade of solar panels, as long as they're not growing so tall that they, they're shading the solar panels. And so you kind of have these two things kind of uh, coexist within the same footprint. Now, one of the questions that I had um, about this, Austin, and I'm wondering if you can, if you can help shed some light on it, is, is where like kind of like property rights wise, like how does it delineate? Like uh, the way, and I, and I could have a misunderstanding about this. So I was thinking, I the way I understood it was that you might be growing. So you might have, so you have you have your solar panels. You have all your rows of solar panels, and underneath them you have, you know, some some pollinators and potentially some crops. Like um, I don't know, let's say let's say strawberries. And you know nuts that you're growing, um, who owns the crops? Would it be the same people who own the solar, or would it be like a different owner? It would. It would probably be a different owner. The way I see the model working, and this is so. Let's actually pause. So the way Jack Solar Garden is working, it's all owned by the company Jack Solar Garden. They own everything. They own the land. They own the solar. They own the crops underneath. While they're actually they're leasing out the land for other farmers and researchers to use. Um, but the way I see this model working kind of at scale is you have, you have a landowner and they, they'll, they'll still own the land. You'll bring in a solar development partner who can bring, bring the engineering procurement construction expertise and bring in project financing. 
to build the solar and own the solar, operate it, but then the farmer still owns the underlying lands, the developer owns the panels and the structure, and they're responsible for maintaining it and then potentially either removing it or um, upgrading it in the future with newer panels. Um, so that's the way I see it working. We'll see. It's, it's still so nascent that it's, there's not really a clear answer. So um, we'll see how the model actually plays out. Because uh, I think it's interesting because um, in my experience when I was doing solar development, it was like um, you kind of whatever, whatever the footprint of the solar array is, we would get a lease area or, or potentially buy the land itself. But we would get like some footprint that was legally delineated. Um, and we would say this is the, the, the land that we are leasing for the next 25 years at this rate of you know, payment. And it's like it's a footprint. So that's like our we have rights to that area right there. So um, and we would sometimes do pollinators as well. But pollinators would be just part of our project. Like it would be part of our like permitting that we would have to do. And so we would maintain like the pollinators themselves. But now I'm thinking uh, if someone's growing crops that, you know, that they're going to harvest and then take and then sell off to someone else, that's where I'm starting to see there, there being a conflict of who owns, who has rights to that land or who has access to that land. Especially if there's like a fence, you know, kind of a fence enclosure locked in and keeping, keeping those assets safe. It's like, um, an additional lock needs to be provided for whoever owns those crops. Right. It does change you know, some of that initial contracting and there's, there's a lot of legal documentation to be sorted out as far as how the standard process for this will go forward. Yeah. So could, so I know there's a lot of hype around agrivoltaics, but at least before I talked to you, I thought it was kind of like, well, you just put solar panels on like a field of grass and then you call it agrivoltaics. You're like, it's next to a field of crops. Um, so I guess to what extent is agrivoltaics, like there's actually some added value in having the solar there and there's like co-benefits. Could you kind of explain that to our listeners who are like me two weeks ago and did not know anything? Yeah, absolutely. So there are these cool co-benefits. So I guess we, we frame it in terms of the energy, water, food nexus. So we'll start with energy production. Actually, we'll come back to energy production. We'll start, start with water. Pretty straightforward one. There's less sunlight hitting the soil and the plants. So the plants transpire less and less water evaporates from the soil. And so the, the net effect is that you don't need to water the crops as much. Um, researchers up at Colorado State University are looking at this and they're seeing like a third to half as much water needed to grow the same yield of crops under solar panels because they just don't need to be watered as frequently. Um, so that's, that's one side is, is the water component, which will be really increasingly important in the West as we are facing mega droughts, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a thing. Um, so then if you look at the food production side, you know, depending on the crop, you know, you might see reduced yield, but a lot of crops you can actually see the same or even an, an increased yield. So they've done this with, with tomatoes. I think it's, it's more or less a wash, maybe slightly reduced. Um, or, you know, peppers actually do really well in the American Southwest. So peppers traditionally um, by indigenous people were grown next to trees because they like shade, go figure. So they actually get, they're seeing an increased yield of peppers under solar arrays. Um, raspberries really like to grow underneath solar panels apparently. Um, another great example would be leafy greens. So 
with leafy greens, picture your lettuce, kale, arugula, what have you. The, the plant's response to having less sunlight is to grow bigger leaves so it can capture more light. And the leaf is what, that's what you're harvesting. So you, you might not, it, what, what actually happens is the leaves will get thinner and so you have about the same dry matter accumulation, which is the metric that the horticulturalists care about. But at the end of the day, you're getting bigger leaves for your leafy greens. So what's not to like? So that's the, there's the benefits to food. I would say also crop resilience. So um, in Colorado in particular, like hail is, is a major factor that can completely devastate a farmer's crops. And so one of the benefits is that the panels actually provide some protection from these extreme weather events. So whether that be hail um, or extreme wind can be another issue. Um, early and late frosts, the panel, having the panels there helps moderate the temperature swings. And so you can actually protect your crops in that case as well. So there's another benefit on the food side. And then coming back to energy, what's really cool is the plants actually help keep the panels cool. And so the semi semiconductors, um, the cooler they are, the more efficiently they operate. And so you're actually helping the panels operate more efficiently during the growing season. Now, over the total year, this amounts to like a few percent difference, but um, it doesn't hurt. I have a hypothesis as well. We don't have the data to bear it out yet. But one thing you also see is you see smaller day-to-day -day swings in the panel temperature. So the, the hottest temperature during the day isn't quite as hot. The coolest temperature is night, at night is not as cool. One of the main degradation processes that occurs in solar panels is this contraction and expansion. And so I have a hypothesis. There's, there's no data to support this yet. It simply does not exist. One day we will answer this. But I think you might see reduced rates of degradation, potentially, of the solar panels due to those smaller intraday swings in temperature. Um, so again, you get, you get these cool benefits. Um, now, downsides, it, it does cost more to build generally. Um, you're incorporating more steel structural costs. And um, at, at least in Colorado, I don't know how it changes with wind loading um, elsewhere. But you, know, you go about a foot up to raise the panels, you got to go another foot down. And so for every foot of steel you're adding in height, you're adding another foot that's going down into the ground. So you're very rapidly increasing your, your steel costs there, which is a major cost driver of solar projects. And then you also need to be really careful on the installation. So one of the big problems that can occur and has been documented in, in some of these solar pollinator projects is when the installer compacts the soil really badly during installation, the soil does not recover easily from that. You can actually make it, uh, you make it pretty impossible to grow anything other than weeds after that. So it's, it's really important that during the installation process, you actually take, take these factors into account of what are we going to be doing with the land afterwards so that we don't cause harm to it now that can't be reversed. Interesting. So let me see if I, let me see if I visualizing this correctly. Um, so like in a solar array, you have, let's say you have a fixed tilt system um, and you have, you know, a bunch of row of solar panels and then you'll have some space in between that row and the next row. And that spacing might be like 
38 feet or so, 30, 35 to 40 feet, depending on what your tilt is and where you are, I guess. Um, but just to give a rough idea, like more than 10 feet, you know, t- more than 20 feet. So there's a lot of space in between solar panels. Um, and that's generally where um, developers and, and maintenance crew drive their machinery um, if, they have, if they have any, if they need any. Um, so where would the crops themselves be growing? Um, and this might depend, I guess, on the crop and the, what kind of crop and what kind of shade it likes, but am I correct in thinking that they would be growing in those spaces in between rows um, or would they be growing kind of underneath underneath the panels, like directly underneath? Or Yeah, I think mostly between the rows is what we're looking at. Because, um, I mean, for one thing, you just generally have more space there. And, yeah, you can get people and machinery through there. So that's that tends to be where it is for the most part. Um, the the Jack Solar Garden project that I mentioned, they're using single axis trackers. So the panels are aligned north south, and they tilt from east to west throughout the day. And so they're growing. Yeah, they've got basically like three beds worth of plants growing um, between the rows. So there's one kind of on the the west edge of the panel. So it's kind of like on the edge of the solar panel, just underneath it one in the middle of the row, and then one um, on the east edge of the next row. That's cool. And, and I wonder also, like, um, so I think, I think agrivoltaics are one of those things that's going to be, you know, it's, it's, ne- it's absolutely necessary and it's going to be happening over the next coming decades. And I guess my question is, when do you think it will start to, to catch on in earnest and really uh, have a compelling argument? Because um, as it is now, I feel like, I feel like in the United States, at least, there's not a huge land um, shortage yet. Like, there's still, like, a lot of land to be developed, especially in the Midwest. Um, and I think this is, like, one of those things, like, because you add another layer of complexity and another, potentially another, you know, financial barrier as well, it's going to be one of those things that won't, that developers won't opt for unless they have to because of permitting reasons or, or like, because the land, like, the, the nearby county and, and neighbors are just like we need to to have more crops and this is the only way you're going to do the solar is if you have agrivoltaics and I, i've actually heard a couple of projects like that to be to be fair like and this is just my you know this is not data this is my the stories that i hear on the ground but i've heard of a developer um one of our partner developers that have had to they've been forced to do agrivoltaics because otherwise the project would have died um so i i, I wonder you know what since you're more you're, you have an ear to the ground better on the data more than I do. Like, is there, are you seeing um, adoption rates starting to tick up or, or not yet? Uh, yes. Yes. First of all, I think it, it is happening. And to your point, it, it's most advantageous in places where you are constrained on land, which, yeah, generally the Western U.S., not really an issue. Um, so this, this concept actually started in Japan. Um, where that's where they first really started growing crops interspersed with solar panels because they are very land constrained. It's a small island with a fairly dense population. So that's, you know, that's kind of the early market. But I do think over time, as we're able to appropriately value the the ancillary benefits of it, so the water savings for farmers, you know, water is one of the biggest costs that farmers face. And so if you can make it so that they can continue to grow despite increasing drought, despite, despite increasing water costs, despite less access to water, then that's, that's a game changer. And then, you know, it's, it really depends on our ability to 
account for those those other values of the project because it is yes it's again it's it's probably going to cost a little bit more to install but you have these other benefits that are difficult to quantify and put in a spreadsheet but they are there and so if we can capture those then i think you'll that's when you'll see that more widespread adoption is is when you know we can say oh to a farmer you know we're going to save you thousands of dollars on water every year by doing this and you can more or less continue operating as you are um, so I, I think in terms of dealing with future drought um, and, and sort of this climate mitigation uh, or adaptation sorry climate adaptation angle it'll it'll start to make a lot of more a lot more sense um, so it, it's coming you know it it'll take time though well, it's good to have someone like you researching these things, you know, now so that when, when it gets here in, in earnest, we, we have data and, and wonky, wonky models that are somewhat useful to, to, to use. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that you're developing these modeling tools with the idea that project developers can use this to kind of go to a financier. Um, so <clears throat> I guess currently... Do, I'm, I'm assuming that there's probably a big barrier to finance because people don't really have, you know, this solid data backing or any kind of models to, like, prove the economic value of the project. Um, so, like, the access to capital is, like, one of the big barriers to agrivoltaics right now. Are there any other big ones um, that, and do you have any kind of, like, hypotheses or proposals for how they could be surmounted? Yeah, absolutely. So, the right now, it's mostly being designed... And, and proposed based on the solar. And then if they throw in the agriculture piece, then that's like, ooh, look at this cool little, you know, we threw some pollinator plants underneath the solar, some native grasses or wildflowers, whatever. I think one of the, the big barriers is this misalignment of incentives between farmers and developers, where farmers very much have an interest in, in the long-term health of soils and the ability of the land to be productive and valuable after the solar is done. Um, and developers are, you know, there, there's some variation across the industry, depending on where you're looking, who you're talking to. But you know, generally, they have fairly short-term incentives where they're trying to deploy as many megawatts as possible for the lowest dollar per watt cost that they can. And then they want to bundle those together and you know, some, some will own and operate those. Others will just be trying to sell those off to an investor um, who will be the ultimate asset owner. And so I think figuring out how you can bridge this gap between solar developers and farmers is really the, the crux of how do we scale agrivoltaics. Because, again, there's just the incentives are not there for a developer to go through the extra headache of, like, oh, we're going to lay down a bunch of plywood as we drive our machinery over the field or, you know, just trying to work with farmers um, to come to a mutually beneficial design rather than just designing a standard solar project. So um, trying to figure out how to bridge that gap. That's that's where I see the uh, the gold. Yeah, that's that's like a I think that's a, that's a very uh, I think that's definitely on the money there, because I uh, when I was out in Minnesota all the time, I was driving through. And I would see billboards up that would say, say no to solar developers, like giant, giant red cross through solar and stuff like that. And I was, I was advised by my coworkers 
um, that when I'm out there and if I'm ever out in the field and someone, if I bump into someone and just talk to them, just never tell them that you're a solar developer. Like, politically, it's, it's, very, it's a very contentious issue because water rights, you know, land rights, and this is their livelihood in a lot of times, um, so there's definitely an inherent conflict between solar developers and, and farmers. And in fact, we, we develop, um, solar projects and we call them solar gardens, um, and like, you know, solar farms. So we're kind of stepping into their territory a lot, which, um, is, is definitely going to be a source of conflict. Um, but yeah, that's, I think it'll be interesting to, to see us start to, to work together and reach across, reach across those, those gaps when we have to. Right. And, and to that point, so one thing I will say is I, I think, People have looked at agrivoltaics as, as a way to make it easier or make solar more palatable for rural communities. I want to see data on that. I'm skeptical of claims that it'll actually make permitting easier or make community acceptance easier. I, I want to see the data on that before I agree. Because um, I, I think, again, like it's there are a lot of entrenched attitudes that you're trying to overcome. But what I will say is I, I do think agrivoltaics is promising as, as a way to bring the benefits of climate action to rural communities and show them, hey, you know, we're going to bring investment and jobs to your communities. You can profit long term off of this and still be able to grow your crops. And wow, it's actually going to make it so that you can get better yields, more consistent yields potentially, and save water, lower, lower your input costs. Um, and so really, I think it's, it's one of those rare win-win-win situations in, in climate action where we can, we can build projects that can benefit local communities. Local communities will see that benefit and hopefully not be as opposed to it in the future. Um, so that's, that's the promise of agrivoltaics as I see it. Well, I think that's a good stopping point for our discussion on agrivoltaics. Um, now we have something called the peak demand round, where it's like rapid fire. We have a few questions. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. And, and we know that you listened to the show in the past, so we changed some of the questions on this one because I think you might, have heard, you might know what to expect on some of them. So we, we changed them up a little bit. Okay. If you, could reborn, if you could be reborn at any point in time, when would it be and why? Uh, I'd go about... 20 years earlier, so I could have been a young adult living in Seattle during the grunge era. <laughs> <laughs> you big Nirvana fan? Uh, I, I grew up on it, you know. I, I, I don't listen to it daily, but uh, that's, that's the stuff I grew up on. Hell yeah. Um, if you had a crystal ball that could tell you any one thing, what would you ask it? How do I... What investment should I make? <laughs> Um, if you could talk to a version of yourself that's 10 years younger, what piece of advice would you give yourself or me when we're in uh, Miss Elock's advanced algebra class? Oh, no, 10 years ago, we were in pre-calculus. <laughs> okay. Uh, I would have said, take some coding classes, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I say it to myself now, to this day. Um, if you could talk, oh, wait, that's the one. Okay, so something you used to believe in and no longer do. Ooh, I, I, I used to believe that my worldview is the one correct one. And that's, that's not true. You know, everyone, everyone's coming from their own point of view. And, uh, yeah. What's your favorite climate tech? Favorite climate tech? I mean, obviously agrivoltaics. I, I think it's more of a concept than a specific technology. I'll say my, fi my favorite 
uh, of the moment is Iron Air batteries. It's just rust, people. It's super <laughs> cool. Let's do it. <laughs> awesome. Love that. Shout out to uh, Form Energy for that one. Um, how do you deal with climate anxiety and the general doomism of the current day? Ooh, well, I, you know, I, I feel fortunate in that what I do in my day-to-day work is, is very much aligned with addressing climate change. So that, that gives me some solace. Um, but really what I do is just try to get outside, get out into nature, go hiking, go skiing with people I love. That's, that's how I like to deal with it is by savoring what we have. Yeah. Great. Um, when have you failed? Oh, (laughs) when have I not? (laughs) Um, let's see. Um, I, I, I feel like I failed at the, um, at the solar and storage startup I worked for. Um, I, (laughs) the, the way the, the company ended, they stopped making payroll and it was a project I've been working on for a year and a half, uh, with the city of Colorado Springs. And I had to pick up the phone and tell them that we can't follow through on our, our obligations. They were ready to contract, like ready to execute the contract. And I, I had to tell them we can't, we can't do it, uh, which, which really sucks because, you know, I built up working rapport with these, these folks over a long period of time. And um, to have to kill it like that was pretty devastating. Damn. Yeah. Um, and last but not least, uh, success means blank. Uh, success means happiness. That's awesome. Okay. Well, that wraps up our, uh, our peak demand round. Thank you for, for bearing with us on that. And you did, you did excellently. Um, this is now the time for our green new spiel. Um, the, um, Kelly, do you want to, do you want to go first since I know you got a hard cut off in like two minutes? Yeah. Um, so my green new spiel is about the, um, net zero commitments that a lot of companies have been making at COP26. Um, so India in particular, agree, uh, said they're saying they're going net zero by 2070. That's a bit later than, you know, a lot of people want to say net zero by 2050, but this is the first time that India has really like set a hard commitment to go to net zero, which is very exciting. Um, and more than 40 countries agree to phase out coal-fired power at COP26 at well, as well. Um, so one of my friends was like excitedly texting me yesterday. He's like, did you see this? The dream of 1.5 is still alive. I'm like, <laughs> it is. it's, it's still it's alive. It's like on life support. <laughs> but Narrow uh, window of opportunity. Narrow, narrow window, exactly. But. Um, ho- hopefully COP26. So this is the next, um, basically Paris was COP21 in 2015. Um, COP stands for Conference of the Parties. It's basically the UN climate change meeting. And so every five COPs is when they have like a new big one where they're going to sign a new deal. So um, <clears throat> it's going to be a big deal. And uh, it, it was actually supposed to be last year, but then got canceled due to COVID, which is good on some level because like, the U.S. administration changed to one who cares more about climate change. So it's good that we have a delegation who isn't there, like, actively shilling for coal. Yeah, they also have huge um, – they're focusing a lot on methane emissions, which is great, um, which is, like, low-hanging fruit and also, you know, as Kelly has mentioned many times, like, has a very high, like, greenhouse gas emission intensity over, like, the short term, like 20 years instead of over 100 years. So cutting down methane is, like, one of the fastest, quickest ways that we can, like, address climate change, like, in the short term. Um 
And Kelly, I don't know if, if you got a hop or anything you want to say, say bye real quick. Yeah, I do have a work meeting that I have to hop to now. It's 9 a.m. <laughs> um, but it's so great talking to both of you. Austin, we should have you on more. You bring the wonkiness and expertise. It's true. Push us. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. For a direct air capture, maybe we need, we need a guest expert. Okay, and I will uh, do my Green New Spiel as Kelly logs off here. Uh, see you, Kelly. Have a good rest of your day. Um, my Green New Spiel this week is regarding um, the, the Biden. Biden created a corporate group called the First Movers Coalition, which includes Apple, Amazon, Boeing, and 25 other major companies. Um, this is to spur on innovation and to decarbonize industry. So this coalition represents eight major sectors that comprise about 30% of the global emissions that we are dealing with today. So these 25, or let's say 28 countries, uh, 28 companies are, are representing a huge slice of the global problem here. So they represent eight major sectors, um, and seven of those are steel, cement, aluminum, chemicals, shipping, aviation, and trucking. And the eighth one is direct air capture. Um, so that's kind of like the one um, new one in the in the um, in the coalition there. And the rest of them are like kind of incumbent industries that we're aware of and that we're trying to to decarbonize. So th- this first ever buyers club is designed to really propel innovation and scale new decarbonization tech de- new decarbonization technologies, and it'll create demand side commitments for low carbon products in aviation, shipping, steel, trucking, cement, chemicals, aluminum sectors, um, and direct air capture. Um, and among these are innovative companies like um, you know Apple and Amazon. So I'm I'm pretty excited to see how they um, how they can throw their intellectual capital and f- financial capital at these problems. Um, a special shout out also to the marine um, zero emission vessels that, that are being talked about here. It's really, um, we start to, we're starting to electrify transportation and that's, that includes cars and trucks and buses and trains, um, but ships, barges and, and all, that's like one of, those, one of those vehicles that I think is really difficult to decarbonize. These, these things are huge. Like, um, let me do a real a live fact check here. How big are they? Because they're, they're huge. Let's say cargo ship um, weight. And these things are 1,400 feet long by 200 feet wide and have an approximate dead weight of 220,000 tons. This is about as heavy as Chicago's Sears Tower. So this is, these, are hu- these are essentially like buildings that can float. And there's so much mass there that you really got to move these things with a lot of a lot of uh, force and a lot of drive. So electrifying these things are are is a huge technical challenge, but it is going to be one of those um, you know um, necessary ones. Like we, we ship everything um, global trade nowadays. Like you, you buy th- something in the United States and you get it shipped in from China or from some other country. Um, so there are some companies out there already that are working on on decarbonizing marine shipping. Um, I believe Maersk is the one that, that comes to mind. That's the one that, that made a commitment um, last year or two years ago. So so that's pretty exciting. I think that's that's I'm I'm always excited to see like public private partnership here and see like the public like really steward and lead on these issues, but allow the private sector to to do what they do best and that's innovate and that's come up with solutions and tinker around that's um that's that's really exciting and um having that public backing is, is really huge because you kind of create this uh, somewhat of a safety net and somewhat of a, a signal to the entire 
um, economy at large, saying that this is what matters to the administration. This is what matters to private capital as well. And, um, you know, just calling it a first movers coalition just brands it with like a leadership, um, you know, air as well, which I think is, is, is exciting. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's my green new spiel. Um, Kelly inadvertently ended the Zoom call, so <laughs> Austin is no longer on the call with me. It's um, just me speaking to an empty screen. <laughs> um, but Austin, um, we're su- super glad to have had you on the show. Um, thank you for coming by again. We'd love to have you on again and tell us more about agrovoltaics and, and the, the, the work you're doing over there in your PhD program. Um, thank you all for listening as well. Um, if you liked what you heard, give us a like and review on, on anywhere that you listen to, Spotify, uh, uh, Apple Podcasts, um, Stitcher, and you know, t- tell a friend maybe. Tell, tell a friend or coworker or a family member about the show. Um, we're trying to keep, keep doing this, keep putting out content and reach new audiences. So we really appreciate your support um, and people who are, who are messaging us and telling us what they want to hear about. Um, yeah, um, have a great rest of your day and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.